teach us. Um, often you think, well, it's up to the preacher up there, whoever's talking, to be able to apply these things to my lives, n- life. No, it isn't. Okay? The Holy Spirit indwells you. That's the key. You may walk out of here some, sometime today. You may walk out of here and learn something, and it never came from me, because that's the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. That's the power of his word. So I encourage you, as you hear this story, be listening for God's spirit. One thing about Mark, if I can say at the beginning, is much of what, if you read, read some of the narratives of Mark and read um, some of the, the, just the situations that he was in, um, he writes about the disciples and about their learning process alongside Jesus. So he may relate a story, like the feeding of the 5,000 or something like that, but the purpose is to show us that the disciples were right alongside Jesus, learning from him, because Jesus was only here, what, two or three more years? And Jesus knew that if the kingdom were to advance, if the, if the seed that he was planting were to continue, it depended on these 12 guys. So all along the way, as he's doing this, we hear about the disciples, and they're present in today's story as well. Now, the context is, we jump right into verse 34, but remember last week, remember the the account that uh, Eric told us about? Uh, First, the disciples got into uh, a boat, got on the Sea of Galilee, got into a storm, a rather fierce storm on the Sea of Galilee uh, that Jesus calmed in the middle of the night. And then they arrive and land on the shore in the middle of the night, close to a graveyard, and out of that graveyard comes this crazy man screaming and yelling at them as they get out of the boat. Jesus casts not just one, but a whole legion of demons out of this man. The man is healed. The demons go into a herd of pig, two pigs. Two thousand of them run down the hill, plop, 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 plop into the water. And then they get in the boat and go back to the other side. So it's been quite eventful, shall we say, for the disciples up until this point. Uh, So here they are. They land back on the other side, the west side of the lake, probably near the city of Capernaum. Here they are. And what's waiting for them in verse 21? A crowd. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Here's the setting already. And one of the main characters, Jairus, a so-called important person because he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. This was a Jewish person. This was a, a Jewish town. And he was a very significant person in the town. He was desperate. He came to Jesus and said, Please, come. My daughter is sick implored him earnestly. Think about that, a father's pain when your little child is sick. If you're a parent, you know what this is like. If you're a parent, you know, as you watch your little one sick or in pain or suffering, you would do anything to take that suffering on yourself and take it yourself instead of seeing that little one suffer. And he knew, he knew that his little girl, and we find out later she's 12 years old, was just heartbeats from death. And so he's desperate at this point. Nothing else matters at that point but to get help. His plea is just simple. It's straightforward. My little daughter is dying. Please come lay your hands on her so that she she may live. We have who, little daughter, the circumstance near death, and how he wants Jesus to come. That's the planner in him. And the solution so that she could live. So verse 24, Jesus went along. He went with them. And a great crowd 
followed him and thronged about him. Now, this is the curious, the, the seekers, the, distract, the detractors, the um, disciples, the followers, all moving in one large mass towards Jairus' house. The New American Standard said that they were pressing in on him. You ever been at a sports game? And as you're leaving, everybody's trying to leave at the same time. You're like shoulder to shoulder with people you don't even know, and you're trying, all trying to get out, and you're shuffling your feet like that. That's the picture I have here. Everybody's like, oh, this is good. something's going to happen. Let's go follow Jesus, a great throng. In the middle of this is the next encounter. See, it looks like it might be a dilemma or interruption, but it isn't. It's a part of, it's a continuation of the narrative. Verse 25, there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. So there's a woman in the crowd, probably blending in, pushing, shoving her way through. She evidently, evidently not just wants to, to hear or see Jesus, she wants to get very close to him. Others were probably annoyed. Who is this? Quit pushing me out of the way. And she's not bold enough to walk up right to Jesus like Jairus did. So she's coming up behind him. She shows desperation too because she has a condition. She had a medical condition, had been hemorrhaging, bleeding for 12 years. This made her, assuming that she was a Jew, ceremonially unclean. Leviticus chapter, 20, uh, chapter 15, verse 25. See, if she was unclean, according to the law, she could not be touched, nor could she touch anyone else. So you add that to the pain. Can you imagine if this was true for 12 years? What kind of pain that is not to touch or be touched? And on top of that, having this debilitating condition that seemed to be getting worse. Verse 26, her desperation led to destitution. She had suffered under many physicians, spent all she had, but was no better, but rather grew worse. She had suffered under their care. Medical knowledge at that time probably consisted of herbs and potions and oils, and it was very expensive. There were probably side effects, and some of it might have been invasive. She was desperate. This condition was getting worse. Instead of better, in her mind probably, and you may have been there as well, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And there Jesus was, verse 27. Right in the middle of the crowd, she had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So here she is pushing her way through the crowd crowd lunges and manages just to grasp the edge, probably the fringe of his garment in an effort to be made well. Now remember, this is premeditated. She's thinking about it. She wasn't just a last minute like that. No, no, no. She's thinking about this, and she knows she's unclean. Do you realize that? He's a rabbi. He's one of the teachers. Oh, my goodness, Jairus is right with him. If I touch him, he becomes unclean too. What a risk this woman is taking. So she says, if I just touch his garment, I will. Notice the little words sometimes in the text. Not might, maybe. She had a strong faith. I will. She had a faith that was not just wishful thinking, but engaged the mind, the will, and the emotions. Verse 29, the miracle. Look at this. Immediately. 
the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Not only did the actual ailment go away, but the symptoms as well, instantaneously. That's a miracle. By definition, it is something, an unusual event that can only be described as a work of God. Now, sometimes we'll use science to explain it. We'll say, well, her bleeding stopped by coagulation. Yeah, but how it happened is known only to God, and he's the one that did it. Verse 30, Jesus, knew, Jesus perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, this, all this happens, these, these couple of verses, just instantaneously. Four things. Picture this in slow motion. The touch, the healing, the sense of being healed, and Jesus sensed that power had gone out of him just like that. And for Jesus, this was a supernatural sensing that God's healing power was gone. And so he said, who? And he noticed again, he didn't say, who touched me? He said, who touched my garment? Who touched my robe? Now this, of course, here's Jesus moving along with a mob of people, everybody shuffling along, and stops everybody in their tracks, bumping into each other and everything like that. And nobody had noticed anything obvious, okay? And everybody's saying, was it you? Not me. I didn't do it. It was me. In verse 31, so the disciples, always helpful, aren't they? The disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you, and yet you say, who touched me? They said, um... Jesus could have been anybody. Why are you asking this? And maybe they're thinking, uh, we're on a mission here, Jesus. We need to get to Jairus' house. Maybe they're thinking, Jairus is important. Jesus, this would be good for you politically. Okay, let's get moving. I don't know. Speculation there. But they're asking, what's, what's the big deal? But Jesus wasn't calling on them to help him find the culprit. Here he knew. This encounter was part of God's plan. Jesus knew there was a frightened woman out there, and he wanted to coax her out into the daylight for a few agonizing seconds. Verse 32, he looked around to see who had done it. Felt like an eternity to her. He's standing around, looking. Is he looking at me? This was it. See, that, that, that moment of euphoria, of being healed, was replaced by terror. She, being unclean, had touched the garment of a rabbi. Oh no, I'm in trouble. See, what could happen? Would, she be, would there be retribution? Would she be banished from the synagogue? Would she be stoned? Should she try to slink away into the crowd? But no. She takes a deep breath. Verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She takes that deep breath, steps forward, and falls down on the ground before him and says, it was me. Did you hear the collective gasp from the crowd? (gasps) Oh my goodness, that woman, we know who she is. For 12 years in the same small town, we know her. She touched the rabbi. You know what that means? She's unclean, he's unclean. Oh boy, what's going to happen now? She's not supposed to be touching anyone. This was a step of faith on her part. But she took the risk and she told him the whole truth. 
So she waits for him to respond, not daring to look up to see his facial expression, still trembling, perhaps trying to explain herself. I'm sorry, I've had this condition. I've done everything I can. I can't, I've not been made well. The physicians, they can't do anything. I've just thought that maybe... And Jesus' calm voice interrupts her. Verse 34. He said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Calm, reassuring, gentle. Relief. Wow. No demands. No scolding. No lecture. She's healed. Pause for a moment here, though, before we get back into the narrative, because there's something here we need to catch up on. See, Jesus could have just blown on by, right? The healing took place. He was on a mission. This girl was heartbeats from death. Did he need to stop? Apparently he did. You know why? It was the encounter that he wanted. The healing, yes, was important. Out of his compassion and power, he is able to do that. But it was the encounter that he really wanted to offer. His calling her out, her confession, and his assurance. That's what he had to offer her. Not just the physical healing, but the encounter. Do we do this sometimes? Do we want the healing without the encounter, we're too busy for that. We're good at online order. We can place online orders, right? One click. Jesus doesn't do online orders. He wants the encounter with you. You're asking him for something. He wants you. He wants me. He wants to encounter us. We need to come to him We need to be coming to him in faith and taking that risk and knowing that it's much more than the healing. But it's that relationship and that fellowship with him. Note that the woman says the woman told him the whole truth. We can do that. He's safe. He already knows everything about us anyway. But for our sakes, our sakes, we need to throw ourselves at his feet and tell him everything he wants to hear us. The story's not done yet, though, because remember, we still have Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter. Mark turns his attention back to Jairus, who's standing there waiting in verse 35. And Jairus is probably thinking, and maybe this encounter only took 60 seconds, I don't know, but maybe he's thinking, okay, the woman's healed, can we move on now? My daughter, remember? And while he's thinking that, Someone comes up to him. While Jesus was still speaking, verse 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Too late. See, we shouldn't have stopped. She's dead. These are the parent, these are the words that no parent ever, ever wants to hear. Your daughter or son has died. I've heard it described like somebody kicked me in the gut or somebody stabbed me in the heart. It's the shock 
of hearing those words causes a physiological, a psychological reaction in the brain that causes a physiological reaction throughout the body. The, the adrenaline begins to flow, the, the heartbeat quickens, the mouth goes dry, the, the pupils dilate. And all of this, the emotions swinging wildly, grief and anger. But before we even know what Jairus' reaction is, Jesus says, verse 36, Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. That same calm, reassuring voice that the woman heard is here as well. Do not fear, only believe. As if to say, you just saw God heal a woman by just touching my garment. Watch what he can do with your daughter. Jesus addressed Jairus' emotions, do not fear, and his will, only believe. Easier said than done, but see, Jesus doesn't, didn't give him or us improbable or impossible instructions. Okay? It may sound like it, but it isn't. He didn't say, now I know it's impossible to bring your human emotions into check, and it's completely illogical to simply believe, but I want you to do it anyway. No. And he wouldn't have said, don't fear just to believe, to someone in severe agony and completely vulnerable just to make him think positive thoughts and feel better. No, he fully expected and knew that this could be the case. And it was in Jairus' case. Verse 37, let's, uh, Jesus says, let's go. Peter, James, and John. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now, this is the first time that this trio appears in Scripture together like this. Uh, you'll remember, perhaps, maybe at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the three were there, and the three were also there uh, in the garden the night that Jesus was betrayed. And here's the first time that the three appear together. He just wanted those three. So they leave one crowd behind, verse 38, and find another. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, not only was it the family there, but also probably paid professionals. I know we don't have this in our culture. We probably don't understand it. But there were people who would come to the house, and that would be, there'd be flutes, there'd be music, there'd be wailing, and this was part of the grieving process. So here was a huge crowd there, and Jesus addresses the mayhem, verse 39, and says, why are you making commotion, weeping? The child is not dead. She's sleeping. He's saying, why have you be, why have you, uh, what's the big deal? Why have you begun the morning show? Get it? M-O-U-R-N. I'm sorry, that, that was my only joke, too. I don't know. <laughs> but this was a rhetorical question to set up his next statement. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Why did he say that? <laughs> was he mistaken? Was he deliberately misleading them? No. Sleeping, verse 40, their reaction, they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. They laughed, probably mocking him. His statement did not coincide with what they knew to be cold, hard facts. The girl's dead. Spirit left her. She stopped breathing. And from Jesus' perspective, she was just sleeping because you recall John chapter 11, Lazarus, the body is dead, but the spirit lives. So Jesus asks them all to leave. Now, wait a minute, shouldn't these people say this, see this? Shouldn't they stay around? No. 
Just Peter, James, and John, Jesus, Mom and Dad. That's it. What was this moment like for Jairus and his wife? See, see, they came, when Jairus left, the girl was alive, but he came back into the room. There her body lay. She was dead. I know for many, this is the moment that is sometimes the hardest for people, is to see a loved one stretched out there, knowing that there's no life in them. I remember my grandfather so clearly. When my grandmother died and we brought him into the funeral home, the open casket was there, and he just slowly walked up to it, put his elbows on the side, and just heaved a deep, deep sigh and stood there for a long time, just staring. Look at Jairus walking into his room. It's a 12 year old girl. We had this beautiful child for 12 years. She's dead. So it's quiet now, leaving the noise and the commotion outside. Jairus and his wife standing there. Jesus, verse 41, walks over to where the little girl's laying, takes that pale, lifeless hand in his own, and says in some confident voice, Talitha kumi, which Mark translates for us, fortunately, from the Aramaic, little girl, get up. And in that instant, that little girl's eyes open, she sits up, and she gets up and starts walking around. That's a miracle. Can you imagine Jairus and his wife standing there with their mouths open? Or perhaps can you imagine from the 12-year-old? Any other 12-year-olds here? No. Can you imagine from the 12-year-old's vantage point? She's laying there, all of a sudden she gets up, and there are these four strange men standing there looking at her, and mom and dad, and she says, I'm hungry. Jesus says, give her something to eat. Verse, 42, uh, verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, can you imagine how it was? Uh, as far as somebody coming back, somebody they knew was dead. When Jairus left her, she was heartbeats away from death. And he knew that. But he clung to that hope. Maybe, maybe if she can just hang on, Jesus will come. And when he heard those words that she she was dead, he lost all hope. Going back, Jesus says, arise, get up. And the little girl gets up and walks around. This is only one of four instances that are recorded, at least, in the Gospels of Jesus bringing somebody back to life. There's himself, of course, the resurrection. There's the son of the widow of Nain. And then there's Lazarus. See, now, although Mark doesn't explicitly say why Jesus told the demon-possessed man back in, earlier in chapter 5 to tell everyone and Jairus to tell no one, it's my strong suspicion he knows the forces at work here and what God wants to accomplish through him during the few short years here on earth. I think that possibly... Telling no one would avoid the wrong type of publicity, which would lead to misguided expectations. We, as human nature, we crave the dramatic, over-the-top performances. Well, there's some observations to make. First, there's some similarities between these two miracles. Both of these individuals were from Capernaum, small town. Both of them had heard of Jesus' miracles and maybe even had watched them, seen one, witnessed one themselves. Both had a significant need that was beyond the physicians of that time. Both were desperate. And I noted the length of the time the woman was sick, 12 years. 
the age of Jairus' daughter, age 12. There's some differences. The so-called important person has a name, Jairus. The woman is not. Jairus is bold enough to publicly seek Jesus' help. The woman comes up from behind, doesn't want anyone to see her when she approaches Jesus. But there is one commonality that applies to us. Each person came to Christ in their time of need and surrendered to him. How many times have we doubted God's ability to act? See, just believe when he said that to Jairus, that's too easy. There must be more to it than that. Or perhaps Jairus was thinking, you know, I thought he would just speak the word and my daughter would be healed. We do this because it translates this. I thought he was going to fix this insurmountable challenge in my life by removing obstacle A, changing obstacle B, and fixing obstacle C. He didn't do it that way, so he must not be answering my prayer. Right? Tell me, would we be so presumptuous? as to prescribe for God not only our chosen resolution to the matter, but also the way he is to resolve it? That's not faith. We do need to say something about miracles. We need to be reminded that some mistakenly might think that God's ministry through Jesus on earth was to heal people physically. Not true. If that were the case, he failed. There were a lot of sick people left and a lot of people died. And in John 17, verse 4, Jesus, in his prayer to his heavenly Father, says, I have completed the work you gave me. Jesus' ministry of healing and raising the dead, quite honestly, were just temporary fixes. These people eventually got sick and died later. We all do. It's part of the curse. The healings and miracles recorded in Scripture, listen carefully for this, to prove the authority of who Jesus is and was to authenticate his message and to assure us of the power of God. The healings recorded in Scripture prove the authority of who Jesus is to authenticate his message and to assure us of the power of God. Does God work miracles? Of course he does. Sometimes in the open like he did for Jairus. Sometimes it's more invisible. Sometimes the miracle is a, in the middle of a heart-wrenching, painful period of a person's life and sometimes the miracle comes in the form of repentance and restoration we often look for the outward and the physical and the visible and sometimes the miracles that God is working are deep within us and the people around us we can learn something from the three groups that were there we saw the disciples they undoubtedly learned of the necessity of faith by observing. The woman, Jairus' family, they experienced the necessity of faith for living. And the crowd, they were trying to understand, but what they saw was a miracle worker who is strangely private and selective in who he chose to heal. Who are we? Well, Quite honestly, you probably fit one of those categories at one time or another in our lives. And what does the woman's faith teach us? There are two one-word things here. What does the woman's faith teach us? What does Jairus' faith teach us? The woman's faith teaches us risk. Can you imagine the risk that this woman takes reaching out and grabbing the hem of that garment? That's faith. 
She'd been sick for 12 years. She'd been carrying this for 12 years. It's hopeless, right? Because some of you, some of us think that. Some of us think 12 years, that's all. I've been carrying this thing for decades. She took a risk. She believed Jesus. What about Jairus? What does that faith teach us? That teaches us surrender. That's another component of faith. Not only risk, but surrender. Some of us might be able to identify with Jairus. We have a loved one that we love deeply and we're just watching, whether physically or or spiritually or however, drifting or, or fading or needing Christ. And we pray for them day after day. It takes surrender. Not only risk, but it takes surrender. God always acts with justice and mercy. That's an understatement. How he chooses to do that is entirely up to him. He is a holy and loving God. We think, you know, because he isn't working the way he did back then, he must not be working. False. He is at work, very actively at work. Mark Golly wrote uh, the book God Wins, and recently in Christianity Today wrote this. God is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And this we must proclaim right in the midst of the most awful circumstances and in the face of the most mysterious questions. We proclaim it not glibly or easily, but in fear and trembling with nothing to hold on to but faith. We proclaim it not because we know exactly how God will work out his justice and mercy. For this he has steadfastly refused to reveal. What he has revealed to us is that he is perfectly just and perfectly merciful. See, our feeble attempts to justify the ways of God to man fall short. I think at probably at times we all have been guilty of this. Attempting even perhaps to use Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good, to try to remove the tension that results from not understanding God's ways. Because when you're in the middle of bad and somebody comes to you and says, God works all things together for good, you say, where is the good? And part of it is because we don't understand God's ways. It's His good. We like to prescribe it for Him. We like to draw this little box that says, God, this is good, I want this. God's box is infinitely bigger for us. His good for us might not be here and now. And His good for us might not be the healing that we seek, but the encounter that He wants. That's the good. That's what He's looking for. When God works in our lives, He does it personally, He does it precisely, and he does it perfectly in his own time and in his own way. His deep desire is to see our faith increased. And it's not too hard for us to imagine him saying, Oh, that my people would trust me completely. I do feel compelled to say, even add even more here, having thought through and meditated on this passage, I I often think that we as believers struggle with this, and we do. We're looking for a God that is good, that answers our prayers. We want that online order form from Him. 
And you know what sometimes hinders us? Our faith. It's us ourselves. And you know what sometimes that hindrance is? Sometimes it's the sin that is so clogged up in our lives that we don't even realize it. That's one good reason to be in a fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ because they help point that out for us, don't they? We need to be understanding that and realizing that. We come to God and we say, I want the answers, and God looks behind us and says, what are you, what's all that stuff you're dragging behind you? Well, that's my sin. I don't want to let go of it. Let me know when you are. In his grace and his mercy, he has provided a way, and that is through Jesus Christ, his son, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What a challenge for faith here. I think these stories are about faith. What an illustration for the disciples. They might, at the moment, have thought it was about healing. Oh, look what Jesus did. Okay, he calmed the sea, and then he cast out the demons, and now it's healing someone who's sick, and now it's bringing back somebody from the dead. Quite a variety there. It wasn't about the healings. It was about the faith. It was about him and what he can do. That's the same God that does it in our lives. That's our God. He was there. He is here. And he will always be. I'd like to invite the worship team forward at this time. And as we do, I'd like to invite the, the prayer partners to come down to, uh, to the front. Because if there is something, maybe you say 12 years,